town of Middlesbrough in the northeast of England is not very famous, and the average New Jerseyan can be forgiven for never having heard of it. It is home to 174,000 people, a football club that bounces between the Premier League and the second tier of English professional soccer, and the ghosts of factories and shipyards long dead. But the spooky story of one of those 174,000 residents is what makes this average post-industrial town worthy of beginning this sermon. His name is Michael O'Neill. And a few years ago, impulsively, he felt the urge to visit an old friend who had emigrated to Australia. So, on this whim, he bought his plane ticket and off he flew, failing to tell anyone about his trip. A few days later, his neighbours grew worried and called the police, who broke down the door of Michael's apartment to find that he had vanished, leaving no evidence of what had happened to him. Now, because Middlesbrough is such a long way from Australia, Michael decided to make the journey worthwhile and stay there for several weeks. And then it got weird. A death notice appeared in Middlesbrough's local paper for a Michael O'Neill, who was about the same age as the Michael O'Neill who was now vacationing in Australia. According to the obituary, the deceased Michael had two brothers called Kevin and Terry. And amazingly, the living Michael also had two brothers named Kevin and Terry. Friends and neighbours of the O'Neill on holiday assumed the worst. That is, until one of them received a postcard confirming that he had indeed gone down under, but not in the way they'd all thought. (laughs) Michael eventually arrived home to find his front door smashed in, police watching the apartment and his neighbours believing in ghosts. Everywhere I go, people are grabbing hold of my hand and saying, I thought you were dead, O'Neill told reporters. They can't believe it's me. I'm a nervous wreck because everywhere I go, people keep grabbing me. According to Gallup, 31% of Americans believe in ghosts. That is up from just 11% 40 years ago. According to Luke, 100% of Jesus' disciples believed in ghosts. They must have because they thought the risen Jesus was one in today's gospel lesson. What a day that was. It was still the day of resurrection and the risen Jesus appears in the room where they are meeting. There they are, chattering, wondering, questioning, imagining. They're excited, fearful, perplexed, overjoyed, confused, doubtful. Can there ever have been such a soup of emotions bubbling in the cauldron of human souls? What has happened? And what does it mean? And is it real? And can we believe it? And what if it's true? 
And into this stew, Jesus drops another ingredient. One that the chef knows will absorb the emotions and reduce the heat of fear. Peace be with you. Now the eleven proved beyond doubt that they were not Episcopalians because they did not reply, and also with you. (laughs) Instead, they are terrified, and that's when the talk of ghosts begins. These 50 days of Easter are marinated in the appearance of the risen Christ. He dines with his friends. He works his way through the menu of questions they have and the buffet of teachings he longs for them to feast on. There's a serenity in all of these reunions. Why are you frightened? And why do doubts rise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Today's lesson is the first time Jesus appears to all of them together, and they don't really get it yet. And why should they? This Jesus clearly has a body. He eats. He can be touched. In fact, unlike Michael O'Neill, he invites it. He is a material person of sorts. But this body is not limited by the laws of physics. It can pass through solid objects. It appears and disappears. It is a transformed body, a spiritual body, a mysterious body. But we don't need to understand it to believe it. We enjoy peace without knowledge, serenity without certainty. John, the writer of today's epistle reading, knew all about that serenity and where it comes from. Knowing the truth of who you are. Hearing the risen Christ call you his child, his beloved child. John says it twice in the first few words of the reading. See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. There are ghosts that inhabit our world, apparitions that waft through the hallways of our lives. They lurk under their sheets, they jangle their chains, some even make wooing sounds like owls. These phantoms are not the souls of the departed, not spirits destined to walk the earth, trapped by malevolent forces or traumatic events. But like those ghosts, ghosts of popular myth and silver screen, they do interact with humans. They float into the corner of our eyes and hover there for a tantalising second before disappearing. These shadows are experiences and things 
The stuff of our lives that we pursue and seize and cling on to because we think they will give us self-worth. We believe we can find our true identity in them. The Mayo Clinic psychologist Amit Sud writes about them. He remembers a time when his singing used to cause genuine distress to his young daughter. Sud would sing uh, badly, but as well as he could, and she would burst into tears at the horrifying sound coming from her dad. Now she is older, and they can laugh about it. Occasionally, Sud will sing deliberately exaggerating the awfulness of his voice, and his daughter will make loud, fake cries of distress. They've turned his poor singing and her disturbed soul into a source of fun and laughter. But, Sud says, they are only able to do so because he does not gain his self-worth from his singing. To find his identity in his singing would be to try to catch a ghost. And this makes me shiver. I ask myself where I gain my self-worth. Where is my identity anchored? Like Sud, I can laugh at my singing voice. Uh, More than that, when someone criticises my golf swing, I will cheerfully compliment them on their excellent judgement. I can even chuckle at my pathetic attempts at speaking French last week in Quebec. Laughing at these frailties is easy. I'm not hurt or threatened when people poke fun at them. That's because I don't look there for my self-esteem. When I order a meal in French and the Quebecois waiter responds in English, I don't feel insulted. My heart is not pained. My world does not come crashing down. I'm just amused. But there are other things, and this is surely common to all humans, things that we think we're pretty skilled at, even gifted at, things we've devoted many years to studying, cultivating, perfecting, and when someone criticises those, then we don't laugh. We might smile and try to appear like we're grateful for their feedback, But inside, we smart and fume and realise what we've known all along, that trying to find our identity in the things we do is like grasping at shadows. Deriving our self-esteem from what other people think of our performance is a ghost chase. It's simply none of our business what people think of us. So who actually am I? I have a fulfilling ministry, but I'm not my job. I have a house and a car, but I'm not my possessions. I have an amazing wife and three adult children that make my heart burst with pride, but I'm not my family. I have a title in front of my name and initials after it, but I'm not my education. I have a British passport, but I'm not my nationality. I have a bike, but I'm not my hobbies. 
I have hundreds of people I'm honoured to connect with every week, but I'm not my community. So what am I? A child of God. And if I am foolish enough to go looking for my essence in the callings I've received or the tasks I perform to attach my identity to them, to look to them as the ultimate source of my self-worth, then my life becomes a ghost story. A chilling saga of clutching at things that can't be grasped. A futile attempt at ghost-busting. Who are you going to call? Well, it had better be something more solid, more real, more up to the task of being the foundation of your life. I am a child of God, and that is all I need to know when this mad, sad, bad world tries to tell me that I'm basically a consumer, or a worker, or a family man, or a Brit, or a priest, or a cyclist, or a member of St. Paul's. When we find our identity in the love of God, we will grow the peace and serenity that Jesus speaks into existence when he meets his anxious disciples. If we believe with all our heart that we are God's child, we will not be devastated when the things we look to for our self-esteem let us down. No one can tell you that you are not God's beloved child. Well, I suppose they can, but the truth of God's love does not depend on their opinion. Neither, gloriously, does it depend on your performance. You can be the most badly behaved Christian ever and still be God's child. There was nothing you could do to become God's child and there's nothing you can do to end it. God chose you, not the other way round. And he chose you fully aware of what you're like. He knew that you would sometimes mess up, occasionally be unreasonable, petty, vindictive, mean even. And he still adopted you as his child. Where else can we go for our self-esteem? Everything else can let you down. You can lose your job. You can lose your family. All those skills and abilities that empower us to live each day, feeling that we're worth something, that our lives have meaning and purpose, they can all atrophy and die. But there's one thing that can never stop and never diminish. It cannot be undermined, undercut or undersold. It won't be knocked down, hollowed out or beaten up. It will not be averted, diverted or subverted. It is your identity as God's child, secured through the death and resurrection of his son. Or you can chase ghosts. You can. You can insist that you are your career. And that might work for a while. 
But when you're taking the heat for a poor decision you made, or when you get a less than stellar performance review, or when that project you've given your life to for months doesn't cut it with your client or your boss or the markets, then you can expect to feel wounded in your very being as if the whole reason you were placed on earth has been destroyed. We don't have to live with that. We can refuse to cling to that ghost. We can let it go because it cannot and will not bring you what you need. The peace and serenity that come from the fact that when all is stripped away, when we take off the white sheet of our personas, our careers, the thousand and one different roles we are forced to play in the movie of our lives, that when all that has gone, what we are and what we always will be and what we are destined to be for all time is God's beloved children. That is our true identity. That is where our life is hidden. That is the source of our self-worth. We worship something more solid than a ghost. A risen and compassionate Lord who looks at you, his beloved child, and says, Peace. Amen.